how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Moses Storm was doing a show in the back of a comic book store when he was discovered by one of Conan O'Brien's booking agents. Moses, along with Chris Redd, who we featured in episode 334, were asked to come improv a special show with Conan. Over the years, Moses and Conan have become close friends while they perform together and where Moses has done sets on series. Currently, Team Coco is producing Moses' new special for HBO Max, Trash White. In this interview, Moses talks about his background riffing with the audiences, advice from Conan O'Brien, complications being a writer with dyslexia, how comedy is therapeutic, and how to find your voice as a comedian. Yeah, I was doing a, a small show in the uh, back of a comic book store. So there's like a little back room. And... Um, one of the bookers saw us there. He's JP Buck is in charge of booking all of the stand-up acts. And he, I was doing a show with Chris Red, who's now on Saturday Night Live. And we were co-hosting a show together. And then he asked us to do something that they were trying out where Conan would go down to San Diego to do his, uh, his Comic-Con shows. They're like, well, the, for the first time, we're going to try something where we're going to have people host a pre-show uh, because there's so much excitement around Comic-Con. And are you guys familiar with this, the Spreckles Theater in San Diego? And we're like, oh my God, yeah. Like the show's going to be there. Uh, you guys are going to be on the roof in the summer uh, hosting a show. And we're like, okay, yeah, that was just so excited to, uh, to do it. And especially with Chris, who's a fantastic improviser. And I mean, the best person to be on stage with because like if something bombs he's got your back so we head up to the roof in the middle of the summer in san diego to host this conan live pre-show that's also shot in 360 
because uh, that those cameras were new. So everyone was trying to do a 360 show and use that technology. Uh, there was no real 360 elements to the show. Like it didn't need to be 360. It was just like me and Chris standing with microphones, throwing to clips and uh, riffing. But we did that. And then one of the days Conan was going to come up and sort of endorse the show. Just be like, hey, tune in for our pre-show on Facebook or whatever was the dominant app at that time. And uh, he just started riffing with us. And he's he's got an improv background. And uh, he says, his words, that he hit it off with us. And he just liked doing that. So his two-minute segment turned into 25 minutes the first day. And then 30 minutes the next, so he would come on with Chris and I and just riff on this live. Uh, which, I mean, thank God Chris was there the whole time. I was so starstruck. I was just like, I just try to keep up. And uh, yeah, I, that's how we first met. And um, then just stayed in contact with the, the everyone that works there. It's really Team Coco. All the people that work for him are such nice people. And it's really responsible for a lot of what I have today. You have defined yourself at that moment. Were you always good at riffing, or is it more about writing the strategy? I know you have like, like a history of like being dyslexic. Does that affect your writing? And how did you kind of balance your you know comedy toolkit? I guess you'd say. Yeah, I think if people see me live now, I mean it's a it's mainly riffing. It's mainly stuff that's happening on the spot. It's happening. It's happening with the audience. I I just I think that's the the funnest stuff, and it's always. Um, and a piece of advice I got from Conan is that the biggest laugh you're going to get is something that happens in that room hmm. versus the most well-crafted sculpted joke. It's, it's always going to be something that happens for just that group that night. Now, the complicated thing about that is once you start transmuting that into a, a, a taped medium, it hmm. doesn't translate. Hmm. It's uh, you, the, you, you had to be there moments. So when I was doing the special, I, I was fortunate to know that. So it's like, you have to invest in all the written stuff um, as well, because it just doesn't, if you're not in that room and you don't have those chemicals flowing and people next to you laughing, it's just not the same. So with dyslexia, yes, you have to um, listen a lot more than the average person. Cause if you were in a class, you can't be like, Oh, go back and do some reading. You have to listen. Cause that's your one shot. Um, you could write some notes, but even you're not going to be able to understand them. <laughs> so what that does is it um, forces you to listen a little bit more, which is great for riffing. If you are talking to an audience member or even going back to improv, just the secret is really listening and uh, trying to get out of your head and, and finding those uh, little pieces of information that uh, most mostly go undone. Um, how dyslexia has changed stand-up is it's not... For me, it's, it's not sitting down with a notepad and a pen and writing things out. Um, it's me walking around the hotel for the show or my apartment and physically talking out loud like a psycho to myself because I, it's just a different part of my brain than uh, writing mechanically and what performing is it's two very separate parts so with dyslexia that means even backstage just walking around and it's absolutely psycho and and thank god 
AirPods were invented because now you can just put those in and pretend you're on a call, but still stand up as a psycho call that you're on. Like, what call are you on? Were you complaining about how many flavors of chips are there? Whatever your bit is. That also kind of naturally, if you don't carry a mic with you, you have more of a lapel mic and you move your hands, you move around. Did all that kind of come from walking around the, you know, preparing the material? Yeah. I just, I don't, if the technology's there, I don't know why we're not, everyone's doing that. Right. Why, why do you need a mic? It just feels so foreign if you're performing. Um, I guess it's a, it's in a lot of ways, it is a subliminal thing that the audience is like, oh, I'm watching stand-up. This is the art form, not a stand-up comedy. There's no podium, so it's not serious. It's not a speech. But for me, it became a certain point where it was limiting. I, I would go into the crowd for things, um, like physically climb over the crowd. So anytime I had the mic, it's like, oh, that's as far as I can go. It is a literal leash now. Um, so that's where I started just being louder on stage. So I didn't have to depend on the mic. And through that process was uh, able to just be present in my body more, use my whole body to perform because your left or right arm is not stagnant with the mic. Um, so yeah, it was just a thing of like, oh, it just gets in the way of performing that holding that mic. What are some other thoughts you had about like aesthetics? So I think you said that you, you or your team literally gathered the the trash and stuff like that for the show. Do, do things need to be visually appealing today? Like Mike Rabiglia did a special last year where he, you know, dropped all these toys and then Bo Burnham did that very intricate, you know, in, inside of his room special. Like, do you need to like people see a clip and know that it's you or know that it's this? Like, how did you think about those things? Uh, I think it was just taking advantage of the opportunity. If you get to do a visual medium why wouldn't you make it visual i feel right. like it's such a disconnect with 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 stand-up they put all this work comedians i love all this work into the hour making it look great um even if it's facial expressions or something and then the set is always the same but it's the same curtains the same four purple lights and a jib crane that's swooping in and i, I just feel like your set and your your ambiance around you should be tailored to each performer. It doesn't mean you have to do the biggest stage. Right. It doesn't mean you have to drive around the streets of LA like I did, picking up pieces of trash and then painting it uh, matte white. It just means that you should think about how your the visual element plays into the whole experience for the audience. I noticed how I was watching stand-up. I'm the target audience for stand-up. If anyone's going to sit through a special, it's me. And I noticed that I would be on my phone, I'd be getting up, loading the dishwasher, and now's the time I sweep. And you don't look at it because you can just listen to stand up. You know, that's nice for some people, but I think it could get pretty stagnant. And we're so lucky to have our job, meaning it's, uh, it's such a privilege that someone will just listen to you for an hour. We barely do that when you're out to lunch with people. So, like, okay, when's my turn to talk? So if you are asking that for the people, then you better give them a show. Let's talk about the material itself. I just listened to your Conan interview. You've kind of said a lot of this publicly. The show is about kind of some traumatic experience. When did you start to like dive into that as kind of a therapy session? Like when did it become really you and really personal as opposed to like, I don't know, a defense mechanism or maybe mimicking other comics you saw very early in your career or something like that? 
Oh yeah. I think if you, yeah. So I'm, I first tried to be Dimitri Martin and just like doing one-liners that didn't work. And, um, but it wasn't until I, I started finding people like Mike Birbiglia exactly. Yeah. But, oh, you can do stories. I feel like that felt more organic. Um, I don't think I've ever used, I think overall, yes, that it's a career is, is therapy, but it's never, nothing's been solved mm. on stage. Uh, I made that mistake early on. Something as, uh, here's a great example. I, I got dumped. No, I got cheated on. <laughs> and then uh, with no, absolutely no sense of any security or um, self-esteem, I was like, it's fine. Don't leave me. Just uh, you can see both of us. And she said no. Um, now, I, I, being very angry, humiliated, all that stuff hurt. I, I got on stage that night. And I was like, I'm going to talk about this. And it was not ready. It made me feel even worse. And that's a very hyper example. I mean, sure, some people gotta give it a week or a month, but it was a great lesson of, of like, you need to do the internal work, the actual therapy, you need to actually talk to someone. It's a real uh, mental health problem. You should actually talk to a professional, solve it within yourself, and then take it on stage. But if you are going on stage with just a bummer story, then again, I mean, this, your audience is people that have worked all day. They, they, they're a contractor and they got yelled at by, by their client. And now they bought a ticket to your show. They bought drinks, they bought food, if it's a comedy club and they want to forget about their day. And if you come on there with something that you haven't processed and so we just bummed everyone out, you didn't do the job of the social contract. So you can use stand-up as therapy, but it should be the evidence that you have moved past what you're talking about, that you've had some perspective on it. It shouldn't just be a mess. Um, I do cringe at those shows. Like I am uh, uh, a little bit ahead of this in the show. I'm dying up here, which uh, sure. Don't look at my MDB. I'm on that for a little bit, but uh, it's uh, you know, sometimes there's always pictures like stand up. You get up there. If you got these raw feelings, then you just say it out there. And that's a dramatic show. So that makes sense for that show that, that why they would do that. But um, it is something I wish I would have known and people would have been more clear about that. You, if you are going through something traumatic, uh, you shouldn't immediately talk about it. You should do the work mm. because your job is still to entertain people and make people laugh. It's not, they're not there for your therapy. And some of that is like, cause most people, what we think about comics is you do five minute sets, you build up material, but you're talking about even before that you're like talking it through, we're thinking it out. Like, how do you know when this story is ready? Like, if you think back on some of these stories of your childhood, I imagine they either weren't funny at the time or weren't funny until years later. How did you kind of start to pick those, you know, just tell the people in public or what was that like first step? Uh, the first step for me is one, yeah, like a psycho walking around the apartment and just what I think is funny. You, you may think you have 10 minutes and then you get on stage and you're like, well, it's about 15 seconds I have that actually works. Uh, the thing that was very helpful for me and just my style was doing storytelling shows and not stand up. You can get way more done at a five minute open mic story show than you could at six separate open mics uh, for comedy. Because if you're telling a story, you have to do the beginning, middle, and end. 
So even if you don't make people laugh, you could you have the 50% chance of interesting them. So if they're interested, then they might stick with you longer. Uh, so your your bomb window, your your uh, leeway to bomb, you have more slack because it's like, I'm going to hear the end of the story. I may not think this person's funny. So it's a great cheat. So I would do shows like The Moth, Risk, or any other open mic storytelling shows to build material. And then take those stories when they had like a few laughs in there, then take those stories to comedy clubs where people are expecting a, a laugh every 15 seconds and then just keep paring it down until it's uh, more funny than it is interesting, which is very hard to do. And then as far as the material choices of think, talking about abuse, talking about poverty, things that are uh, pretty hard. I, I knew the show was ready when I was actually coming from a place of forgiveness. And it wasn't like, oh, I think the show needs an ending, so you should forgive. But um, yeah, it's not funny to just watch someone bitch about their childhood on stage. So it was, yeah, when I actually came to a point of forgiving my parents, and my mom for, for things that happened to us that it was ready. That's how you know, because <laughs> it's like yeah, breaking down up there. Did your childhood make you kind of relentless or fearless? Because, I mean, it seems like even transitioning from one liners to story, you're going through a lot of rejection. Comedy is stand up comedy yeah. is rejection. Did you just like what made you keep going in the beginning, I guess? In a, in a real way, it's like I and I hate when comics say this, like I can't do anything else. It's like, well, you could you could work at Taco Bell, you know. You, you could try to work at Costco. Um, it's the only thing that I could monetize and hopefully break some generational poverty mm. uh, with. I, I had never been to school, could barely read or write at 16. And people start asking, like, what are you going to do? You're going to go to college? I'm like, I, I got to get hooked on phonics first. So stand up or just comedy or entertaining is a, the barrier for entry is low. Um, the mark for the watermark for success is very high, but the barrier for entry is incredibly low. So I, I would just started pursuing because there is no backup plan. I mean, the backup plan is still doing comedy unsuccessfully and then working at Taco Bell in the day. So there is a real go for broke. There is no plan B. Uh, it, this is the only thing I could, you know, I enjoy it first of all, because that does help with the rejection that you're talking about, because if you still enjoy it, then it, it might keep you getting back up after you get knocked down. And then, um, and then this being the only financially viable thing that I could do, uh, cause I did look into law school cause I was like, I have to be a lawyer, but, um, it's, it's just too much. So stand-up was easier. That's a bad answer, but it's the truth. Um, yeah. Did you see it? As, so you talk about in the, in the special about your, I think one of your mom's ideas was to like kind of fake a video for American Home Videos and you'd make 10 grand or something like that. That's kind of like a lottery ticket though. It sounds like when your perspective getting into comedy, it's like it, it could be an, your, your chance to get in is, is more 
plausible. It's just like this war of attrition. Is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, it is a bad, um, I wouldn't recommend it. People ask me like, I'm thinking about doing standup. I like, you honestly you should do something else. If you're trying to be an actor, you're standup, you're, you're essentially saying I'm signing up to play the professional lottery. My only job is going to be the lottery. Cause it really is that I work my ass off and I'm still only kind of doing well. And uh, it, there are people that just, you know, their dad's a studio head or they know someone or they're at the right place, the right time. And it's just, it, I've seen so many people just uh, break out here. Of just like they break down. I mean, they're good. They're talented. And uh, still, it doesn't work out. It is a lottery. So it's still not a, a smart idea. But um, yeah, if you love it, that's a reason to stay in it. Yeah, I'm sure I took a lot of that stuff from my mom, trying to play the lottery, essentially, of, of uh, getting on America's Funniest Home Videos. And uh, probably my first parlay to performing was that, was staging that bit. It was at least turned something on in my brain of like, oh, TV's fake. This could be a job uh, early on. So if anyone is not familiar, we one of our main jobs was just and I only showed one in the special, but it was there's multiple uh, bits or skits or sketches that she would create or stage in the hopes of getting on that show and winning 10 grand. And so you also kind of talk about like, did you realize later on as you're writing a special that you were using that formula to be a, a grifter, I think is the way you kind of put it. Like, did you see that right away or did that come later that you're like, oh, this is kind of that formula? Uh, it came when I uh, understood the part of, of the whole special being about forgiveness. And it was more interesting for me to to pull off all the tools that um, that she taught me than just say, I forgive you. I just thought it was a for me, it's like, oh, that's what I would watch. I would watch someone actually use all the tools. And it's this long, long con or long payoff that doesn't really pay off to the next special is out. And then I think hopefully people uh, will appreciate it. If not, I will. And um, yeah, it was just a more interesting way to do it. I'm like, Oh, just, yeah, show it. I mean, it, there's so many parallels to what I do now and, and um, how we grew up just grifting. I mean, stand up is a, is honestly, it is a grift. You are soliciting a spontaneous response by using a very canned uh, performance. I mean, stand-ups, they, the, the jokes you're hearing that night, I mean, they said this for uh, <laughs> maybe 10,000 times before you've heard yeah. it, and you still have to sell it like it's the first time you're saying it. And you still have to place yourself there and the emotion if you're telling a story joke. And uh, yeah, so it is a, it is a grift. What are, and this is kind of a maybe looking outside of yourself, almost like a third party question. But Conan also said he saw your talent, but also your work ethic. How do people see work ethic if you're in yourself or in other peers of yours? Is it just night after night type thing? Or how, how do you kind of present that? That's honestly a great question, because that's the number one thing I get is like, wow, you work hard. I'm like, what about the talent part? Uh, you know, your ego. <laughs> Um, but that's the one thing is like, wow, you have the most impressive work ethic. And then I guess for me, it's, I don't see that. I just see all the days that I'm lazy and horizontal eating kettle chips because the bag is healthy. The bag has a font that makes it look healthy. 
I just beat myself up for the, the days I'm not constantly working. But um, I, I think a great rule, great creative rule, if you want to do something that is that is uh, a very lucky job to have, it's, you're essentially doing the impossible. You shouldn't know anyone that works harder than you. There should be no one in your life of like, you know, who's really working hard. So there are people that work way harder than me that have overcome, but I don't know them right now. At least I don't know exactly what they're putting in. But um, yeah, it's a major red flag. If you have someone that's one of your friends or close to you and you see them working harder than you, it's like, well, what do you expect? Everything you don't have is because of the things you're not doing. Was there any false beliefs you had about being in comedy or any bad advice you got early in your career? Oh man. I, it took me a while to understand it's not bad advice, but I worked overnight at a, um, at a uh, after hours nightclub. It was one of my three jobs. When I first moved to LA, worked at two restaurants hosting, and then I would work 9 PM to 9 AM the next morning as a bus boy which meant sweeping up vomit and sawdust uh, because if people just do drugs. And the, but I held on to that job because every once in a while at this venue, when it was not a nightclub for people that are about to die, uh, they would have comedy shows there. And one of the people, very serendipitous, was Mike Birbiglia running, uh, I think it was my girlfriend's boyfriend. And I... I, I I was so excited to meet him. I had obviously heard all of his stuff and he had left the accident report on stage. There's a part where he, he shows the accident report. I think he even shows it in the special, but he had the physical paper of the accident report where someone hits him and they're, and they're blame him for the car accident. So he left that very valuable thing. He's not going to go back out where the audience is still there. So he's like, oh, I need someone to go get it. And I was like, oh, I'll get it. Cause it was like, wasn't my job at all, but I volunteered, jumped at the chance backstage to go get that. And I asked him, I was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing stand-up. Do you have any advice for stand-up comedians? Uh, and he gave me, I, I walked away being incredibly disappointed. He's like, um, oh yeah, you should, uh, you should watch, you should watch videos of Jerry Seinfeld uh, doing interviews. You should watch clips of Jerry Seinfeld. And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? What does that even mean? Um, it's, uh, it took me a while to, one, understand that there is no advice for stand-up. You just got to get on stage and do it and do it. There's no class. Anyone that's selling you anything or saying it's this one way, they're completely false or they're on their way out. Now the new way in is put your clips up on Instagram and just you're not playing for an audience. You're playing for an algorithm. So what he was really saying is like, one, there is no advice uh, for stand up. And two, it's just like, yeah, watch how other people talk about it. Look how possible it is. Mm -hmm. It works for them and you'll find your own things. Um, but yeah, that was advice. I was like, oh, that was a bummer because I held someone so high and was, I don't know, I guess I was expecting some sort of shortcut of like, you know, what yeah. you got to do, you got to buy this red notebook and then you know, all your problems will go away. Yeah. You wanted like the tact, the tactical, not like the principal yeah. advice, which is more useful later on. Yeah. But I think that would be very helpful for anyone to know is that if, if it's something that is stand up comedy, unlike acting, 
um, like yeah, business principles, there really is no class. The class is you spending four hours at an open mic to get up for three minutes, watching everyone else. And, uh, you know, they're not doing well. What the people that are doing well, like, that's not even that good. And then, um, and just you getting up, failing, doing well, painfully listening to those voice memos back of the set you recorded. And um, that's really it. It's, I wish it was more and I wish it was easier, but it really is just actually doing it. We'll just do one more. We, and we may end right there because that was so great. And you've given a lot of great advice already. Do you just have any other comments, not just like advice, but like about finding your voice? Because that seems like a trickier part. Anything you did specifically to figure out who you are on stage? Yeah, I think you shouldn't be afraid to steal other people's voices. Never jokes. But uh, yes, in the process of trying to find your own, it was helpful to try on different personalities. So like maybe you try Milady for a week, you know, but definitely get away from that. Stop doing that. Um, try on different voices and then you'll find your own. I think there's such a premium put on that. You got to be original. You got to do it. And you will be original because you are your only, you are the only you. And try out different cadences, styles, and voices. And don't be afraid to essentially parrot those because you will, you will find your own. Um, I think a lot of people are too cool to admit that that is actually what they did. Mm -hmm. And then you can watch early tapes of them. You're like, oh yeah, that's when Carlin was big. That's when you started. Yeah, everyone's doing that. Oh, everyone's doing John Stewart when he was doing stand-up. Um, everyone does it. Uh, they're just too cool to admit it but try on different voices. And then if you ever get the comment, oh my God, you sound just like Seinfeld. Uh, stop doing that immediately and then avoid, avoid videos of Jerry Seinfeld in interviews. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.